You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. is probably we're all tangibly aware of is just how difficult life in this world can be, right? No one, no one hears that and is shocked by that life can be very, very hard. And I think what makes life hard so much of the time is, is how difficult it can be on so many fronts all at the same time. It'd be one thing if it was like, these seven areas of your life are awesome, but this one's hard right now. And I have found that that's rarely the case. Life can just be so difficult on so many different fronts. So you can be in a season where something really difficult is going on relationally and something really difficult is going on at work at the same time. You can be in a place where things are difficult on the financial front, on the emotional, mental front, on the physical front, something with your health. And all of this can be happening at the same time. And the truth is, life can be very difficult for us, even on the spiritual front, because life is simply hard. And while that difficulty has a tendency to shake us, I would argue it should never shock us. We should never enter enter into a season of difficulty and be like, what is happening? Because in John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. So Jesus predicted difficulty in our lives, so we need not be shocked by it. But it's also important that we understand why he predicted difficulty. He predicted that difficulty for our protection. The reason that he predicted it was because of the effect that difficulty has a tendency of having in and on our lives. See, difficulty has a way of driving despair. And and here's what I mean by that. When things get hard, we are tempted to give up. We're tempted to give up. So I'll give you a silly but nonetheless real-life example. My guess is all of us have. I want you to just picture the gym for a second. For some of you, maybe it's been a minute, so this might be hard. But, but I want you to just picture all the equipment in the gym. My guess is all of us have at least one piece of equipment in the gym that we hate. And some of you are looking at me like, right now like, just one? Like, how about, <laughs> how about the whole thing? Okay, I, I, that's where I spend most of my time. But there is one piece of equipment in particular that I find by far the most soul-sucking, and that is the stair machine. I want you to just think for a second about how sadistic the stair machine is, okay? There, like, if we're honest, no one enjoys going up a stair. <laughs> like, you've never been at the airport before, like, trying to get to your gate, and you see that the escalator going up is closed, and you're like, Good, I was hoping I'd have to walk up this mechanism that is meant to transport me. No one likes going upstairs, but some psycho sat down and was like, you know what we could do? We could build a machine where the stairs are literally endless, and everyone will want to die. And so because of that, every, every time, the same thing happens every time I, I do, despite my hate for it, I try to use it occasionally, and, and that I had the same process every time. I get on thinking, I'm going to go for an hour. I'm going to go for an hour. I'm going to show this machine who's boss. And then, then it happens somewhere between the th- three and seven minute mark. 
where I start to, to, to question every decision I've ever made in life. Uh, on this thing, sweating, dripping, thinking things like, why am I doing this? Like, is my health really that important? Would a heart attack be less painful than what I'm experiencing right now? And so oftentimes, the difficulty of that experience, it causes me to cut that time short. So I aspire to an hour, but because of the difficulty, I settle for mere minutes. And the reason for that is that difficulty in our life has a tendency to drive us to a place of despair. So when something gets difficult, we're prone to quit in the name of comfort. Now, here's why that's so important for us to be aware of, particularly in our life with Jesus. We live in this tension between what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. Now, that might not be super familiar language or concept for you, but this is a very important area of theology for us to understand because it's where we live. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Now, here's what that means. On the one hand, Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. So, practically speaking, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, they have put his plan to redeem all things firmly in motion. So Jesus' plan to bring his kingdom, it is already happening even as we speak. Right now, us gathered together like this, this is an expression of his kingdom already coming in this world. And even though his kingdom has been inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated. Meaning, the scriptures tell us that a time will come when Jesus will physically return and literally bring heaven to earth, remaking this world perfectly and living with us eternally. And that day, according to John in Revelation 21.4, means this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So that, as we all know, has not yet happened. So we live in this space between the already and the not yet. And in this space, as we all know, life is painfully difficult so much of the time. And because it's difficult, we live with the very real threat that we will despair and we will give up on faith in God. And I have been a Christian long enough and a pastor in particular long enough to see, I've seen countless people, when life gets difficult, when faith gets difficult, they pull the ripcord in the name of something that just feels easier. And so the story that we're going to sit with today is intended by Jesus to help us stay the course, particularly when life is difficult. And so here's what he's going to tell us this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. This will be our big idea. Persistent prayer helps us endure the difficulty of life with patience. Persistent prayer helps us endure the difficulty of life with patience. So we're going to unpack that with the story of the calloused judge and the persistent widow. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on and you want to get a head start, you can turn to Luke 18 again. Luke 18, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8 together this morning. And uh, let me just jump in and then I'll provide a little bit of context. But look with me at Luke 18, verse 1. It says this, Now he, Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So notice, this doesn't always happen when we are 
uh, studying a story of Jesus together. But in this one, Luke front loads the story, uh, telling us Jesus' intent for it. And so this story is all about the need, as he says in verse 1, the need for them to pray always and to not give up. Now, that always there can be a hang-up for some people because if we misunderstand that, it sounds like, so the only thing we are ever to do is to pray. But that's not what that always means. It refers to a pattern of continual prayer, not continuous nonstop prayer, meaning there should be a pattern of prayer in our lives. It doesn't mean the only thing that you should ever do is sit in a corner and pray, but there should be a pattern of prayer. So additionally, Jesus, if you look back in chapter 17, Jesus places this story in the midst of a larger discourse that he is teaching on about God's kingdom, the space, if you will, between the already and the not yet we just discussed. That's what he's talking about in chapter 17. And so Jesus has promised to make every wrong right, but he has not returned and delivered on that promise in the fullest sense. And he knows that. And so here's the formula, if you will, that Jesus is trying to help us avoid, okay? Uh, life's difficulty paired with what feels like Jesus' delay often results in people giving up. So life is difficult. It feels like, I know Jesus has promised some stuff, but he seems super delayed in delivering on that promise. So maybe it's not really true, and I'm just going to give up. Now, it's into that entirely understandable and shared experience that Jesus tells this story. Look at verse 2. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. Sounds like many of our modern-day politicians. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So notice, this story is going to center around two characters, a calloused judge and a very persistent widow. And so as far as the, this character uh, and his competency as a judge goes, this man that we start with, he has two strikes against him right off the bat. Strike number one is he doesn't fear God. That should tell us something about him. And that's especially problematic for one who is entrusted with the responsibility of presiding over issues of dispute because that requires immense wisdom. And Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's strike one. Strike two is he doesn't respect people. So how exactly are you meant to provide justice and care to people that you don't respect? You can't. But the truth is, even more than a black eye on his ability to do his job, these two strikes are meant to depict a failure to uphold the great commandment, love God and love people. This judge does neither of those two things. Now, the victim... And the heroine of sorts in this story is this unnamed widow. Now, widows were typically easily recognized by their very distinct attire in the first century. And so even their dress pointed to their plight. Now, many women in that culture, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a bunch of things about marriage and being a widow in the first century. None of them is an affirmation of it, okay? Basically, it was horrific to be a woman in the first century and it still is today in many ways. Amen? Good. That's called pandering, okay? Uh, so <laughs> widows were easily recognized. Many women got married in their early teens in this culture, and what that means is many widows were not what we would picture as a widow, where we picture like someone that is later on in their life. Many widows could be very, very young because of how young they married. 
And so when a woman's husband died, they were often left with no means of support. Because even if her husband left an estate, that went to his family, not to her. And so if she stayed as a part of her now deceased husband's family, oftentimes she had to hold this almost servile position. And if she went back to her family, any money that had been exchanged at the wedding had to be returned. Again, I'm not affirming that as a practice. It's just what happened. And so widows, as a result of this, they were often extremely victimized could even be sold as slaves for debt. And so on the one hand, this widow is needy, and she is helpless and poor and oppressed, and worst of all, she's completely at the mercy of a judge who, according to the story, doesn't care about justice and doesn't care about her. But despite all of this, I love the fact that in Jesus' story, this widow refuses to be a victim. She stands up and she advocates for herself. Verse 3 says that she kept coming to him, saying, give me justice against my adversary. And notice what happens. Look at verse 4. For a while, he was unwilling. But later, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, so this guy's, if nothing, he's self-aware, at least. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. All right, so let's be real clear about this woman's persistence. It did nothing to change this judge's heart, right? This isn't some Hallmark movie where the antagonist has some grand transformation. He still doesn't fear God. He still doesn't give a rip about her. He's just tired of being nagged. That's the only reason he gives her what she asks for. In fact, the Greek phrase that we translate as wear me out, it literally means hit me under the eye in Greek. And the point is not that he feared physical violence from this woman, but that her persistence carried that same effect of getting punched in the face. And the guy's like, I can only handle so much of this. Like, this is just getting old. Just give her what she wants. And so the lesson in this is that persistence has a way of being very powerful. I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, My freshman and sophomore year in high school, I had a terrible, terrible history teacher. I love teachers. I think that that's one of the most significant, important jobs that there are. I think it's probably the most underpaid job that exists, and some teachers are not very good. And I had a history teacher that just, like, objectively was not a good teacher. But as tends to be the case in small private schools, like the little Christian school I went to, Everyone just sort of put up with it because it's so hard to find people who want to teach in that environment because, believe it or not, they make even less than public school teachers. And so the problem for me personally with this guy really hit a peak when I failed a history test my sophomore year, and as a result of that failure, I was ineligible for my uh, sophomore homecoming football game, and I was devastated. And so I remember meeting with him, and I begged him for any way to make it up. Just, just to get to the point where I could at least be eligible to play. And it was important to me because there was a pretty unspoken agreement between my parents and I that like college was only going to happen for me based on football. <laughs> my grades weren't going to get me there. So missing a homecoming game was a big deal in my life and in my home. And so I begged him and begged him, and I just remember he just refused to do anything to be able to help with this. And I also remember... Him, him conveying his refusal to help in a way that, that almost expressed this sort of like satisfaction from him that I was going to miss the game. Yeah, he was not, he was not a big fan of me, much of which was probably my responsibility. 
But, but, but what you need to know is my mom, very similar to this widow, she was not going to take this lying down. And so after he refused even her request for a reasonable solution, my mom went to every single school board meeting for months, and she persistently laid out this case for why this man was unqualified to teach. And guess what happened? They fired him. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I mean, it's so sad for him. I mean, he kind of deserved it because he wasn't good. But I was just remember being, looking at my mom being like, God, you are savage. She just was un, unrelenting, and she would just keep going. So there's two lessons in this. Number one is my mom is not to be trifled with, okay? <laughs> Number two is that persistence is powerful. And so Jesus conveys the lesson of this story in these final verses. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, I've read a lot of sermons and a lot of commentary on this text. This is an oftentimes terribly misinterpreted text. And the reason for that is that we miss the type of argument that Jesus is using here. He's using a type of argument that, that argues, uh, it's called from the stronger argument, is basically, I'll skip the Latin name because it's just so nerdy. But the point is not that God is like the unjust judge. Remember we've been talking about how we have to be really careful not to force everything in a parable to mirror something in reality? And so this is another example of that. Jesus is not saying that God is like the unjust judge. The point is, God is nothing like the unjust judge. Yet even though this judge, who is completely callous to this woman, he can still be worn down by her persistence. And so Jesus' point is this. God does care, and he cares deeply for you. He longs to help us. He is the essence of justice, and as a result of that, he loves to right wrongs. So he doesn't need to be pestered. He doesn't need to be nagged or troubled or worn down. He stands at the ready. Now, that being said, the obvious reality is that in many cases, Jesus does seem super delayed in his response to our requests. Agreed? Or in his own promise to return and make all things new. He seems pretty delayed. And so when it comes to time, it often just feels like God and I use a completely different clock. As if the very units of time that we subscribe to are entirely different. And the truth is, that feeling is accurate. Because Peter, in 2 Peter 3.8, he says this, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact, which is like, really pay attention here. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. So what that teaches us is that God exists outside of what we know as time. So he is not bound by our sense of time. He's not bound by our expectations surrounding when he acts. But that doesn't mean that he will not act. See, the sobering reality is we have to come to terms with the fact that we won't always see Jesus' response this side of eternity. But he will right every wrong. But the question, according to Jesus, is this. Will he find faith on earth? Meaning, despite what feels like delay, will he find his children, people like you and I, faithful to endure the difficulty they encounter? 
according to Jesus, persistent prayer helps us endure the difficulty of life with patience. Now, here is what I think is a really critical question. How does one practice persistent prayer when they are already on the verge of giving up spiritually? Think about what a kind of a weird prescription this is from Jesus. Because, again, the context here is people who are struggling spiritually. In the, the, in the in-between, between the already and the not yet, where life is very, very difficult, and we long for Jesus to do what he said, but it seems like he's taking forever, and as a result of his delay, our faith is struggling, and you start to wonder, like, is he real? Is he coming? Is he going to do what he said? And it's in the midst of that Jesus goes, hey, I know that your faith is like hanging by a thread, but here's what you should do. Pray more. That seems like kind of an odd prescription. Because isn't that kind of like going to the doctor for some kind of knee pain? And she's like, well, what you should do is just keep walking and running on it like crazy. That'll fix it. You're like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like that's probably the right thing to do. And so it sounds like Jesus is prescribing the one thing a person probably wants to do least in seasons like this. But here's what I found. I have found that in seasons of spiritual difficulty, prayer as a practice is rarely the problem. The problem is the way we've been conditioned to pray. Many of us have never been taught how to pray or never experienced an expression of prayer beyond what we might refer to as like basic intercession, meaning there's people in my life or things in my life where I have areas of need and I tell God about that need in hopes that he will give me what I need. Some of us have never learned to pray beyond that point, and that's a very good righteous, sacred form of prayer, but it is in no way the totality of what prayer is. And it's because of that that we just get a little upside down when we're in seasons of spiritual struggle because we're like, well, I don't really feel like praying my list today. And so as a result of that, I want to point you again to a more helpful form of prayer, especially when we are in seasons of difficulty. So I want to come back again to the type of prayer known as lament. Now, prayers of lament or prayers of complaint, again, they fill the pages of Scripture, and it's a way of offering our unfiltered grief to God. But oftentimes, praying in this way feels very foreign to most of us. And so I want to just highlight a number of shared uh, characteristics that we see in biblical prayers of lament. So I'm not going to give you chapter and verse examples of all of these for the sake of time, but just as you read through the Psalms, keep this list of examples next to you, and just notice how frequently these things surface in prayers of lament, okay? And so what I want to do is I want to break down the word lament as an acronym. And this is not going to be like a linear method where you start at the top and pray through to the the close. What it's really meant to be is just various characteristics of lament that can help you get started. And again, we're going to do Q&A, so text in any questions practically that you have about any of this. So let's break down this word lament, all right? The L invites us to this, to let him in. The L in lament invites us to let him in. Our tendency in seasons of spiritual difficulty is to withdraw, oftentimes from people, but most specifically from God. And so when we're struggling spiritually, we begin to isolate ourselves from him emotionally, mentally, we're not really thinking about him. We also isolate ourselves physically from the very God who longs to help us. Oftentimes, in in seasons of spiritual difficulty, 
while an environment like this where there's worship and there's prayer and scripture, this is the place we need to be, oftentimes we make the deliberate choice to not be in this environment. We think this is a good day to hike, this is a good day to ski, this is a good day to brunch, this is a good day to do almost anything other than be in the presence of God with the people of God. And while that, again, is entirely understandable, it is equally unhelpful. That that decision is like being in a place where you are physically starving, but also avoiding food. The very person that we are running from is the remedy to our problem. So to the degree that you are able, let him in rather than shut him out. So the L invites us to let him in. The A invites us to ask for justice. Ask for justice. Now, this is the crux of many of the biblical laments. So the prayer, if you will, has experienced or observed something that is objectively wrong. It is unjust. And so as a result of that, they beg God to right that wrong because he is just. And and we need to become more comfortable and familiar with this as well. We should never so sanitize our prayers that we are unwilling to call a spade a spade and just simply name an injustice. Some people feel like, well, to call something unjust, to call something wrong feels unloving. And the truth is, to call an injustice anything other than injustice is not loving because it's just flat wrong. And so one way to identify areas of of injustice in your life is to pay attention to the emotion of anger. Because anger is the natural response emotionally to an injustice. And so if there's something in your life that has been done to you or something that should have happened that did not happen and you feel this sort of lingering sense of anger or you look at something that goes on in the world and you feel angry about that, it's because you perceive that as an injustice. And so rather than just carry the anger around, tell God about it and beg him, make this right, fix this, because you are just, and so I ask that you would bring justice. So that A invites us to ask for justice. Uh, The M invites you to mourn your loss. Mourn your loss. Many laments are filled with grief. So there's been a loss of security. There's been a loss of trust, a loss of personal lament. Maybe there's been a loss of a loved one or some, something meaningful that you lost in your life. What we often do with that grief is we bottle it up and we just hold it rather than to mourn it. Tell God about the pain. Tell God about the sadness. Tell God about the confusion and make no mistake He cares so deeply about that. You know that Psalm 56, 8, I read this, remember reading this as a kid, and I've never forgotten this verse, specifically the image that it paints. Psalm 56, 8 says that God has put our tears in his bottle. Just think about this. Now, I, I, I highly doubt that Jesus is somewhere in the multiverse right now with, um, is, is there a multiverse? That was... That was for you, Matt, and I got zero response. Are you even freaking awake? You're in the front row, man. Anyone would laugh at a multiverse joke. I thought it would be you. So God's somewhere. I don't know that he literally has bottles of our tears, right? That probably doesn't happen. But I want you to think about what that imagery is supposed to indicate to us. It indicates to us that all of our grief is significant to God, that all of it is sacred to him, and that he longs to bring 
comfort to soothe us in the midst of our pain. But I'm telling you, he can't soothe wounds that you won't bring to him. Many of us are just choosing to carry our grief alone. So instead, the M invites us to mourn our loss. The E invites us to engage our doubts. To engage our doubts. Uh, Let's just verbalize something that many in evangelicalism seem really uncomfortable to admit, okay? Every single person has doubts. Every person. I came to faith when I was six years old. It was genuine. I got baptized twice just to make sure it stuck. And I've been walking with God for the most part. That was also a joke. If you're like, well, this is weird baptistic theology. (laughs) Um, And so I've been been walking with God for a very, very long time. I have had um, more experiences, genuine experiences of his presence with me than I could even possibly count. And at least once a week, I'm driving, it's always when I'm driving, I'm driving down the road and I have this thought. What if none of this is true? You ever think that? It's scary for me because this is my vocation too. (laughs) But at least once a week, I'm just like, what if it's all BS? And so I say that not to cause you worry and concern, (laughs) but just to say, like, we all have doubts. And it is far, far more dangerous to deny them than it is to dialogue with Jesus about them. Jesus knows your doubts exist. When Thomas came to him, poor Thomas now, that is forever labeled as doubting Thomas because of one moment of very fair skepticism. (laughs) But remember, in Jesus' interaction with him, when when Thomas was like, "Mm, I don't know about all this, let me see the scars, what is Jesus? Jesus doesn't shame him or shun him. He's just like, here, look. Jesus is not in any way surprised by our doubts. He knows they exist. Everyone who has ever walked in faith has had them. The problem is we often don't invite God in to the wrestling. Instead, we exile him to some other place while we try to sort this all out on our own. And I would just say, that he invites us to take even the journey of doubt with him. So lament enables us to engage our doubts. The N of lament invites us to name our feelings. Some of you are probably like, this is getting really touchy-feely today. Well, if you've been here before, you should not be surprised by any of this, okay? Lament, if you read through them in the Psalms, they are always filled with feelings, And we, studies would show, are becoming less and less um, adept at both identifying and having the ability to name the things that we feel. And so it doesn't mean that some of us don't feel anything. What what varies is the degree to which we are aware of what we feel and, and, and the degree to which we have language to be able to name the things that we are feeling and experiencing emotionally. So studies would show that we are getting worse and worse at that. The average American can only name three emotions, identify three emotions, happy, mad, and sad. That's it. And I'm here to tell you, if if all we had is the Bible, there are way more feelings than just those three things. And so when we are able to name our feelings, a couple of different things happen. One, it honors our own experience. This is happening. I am feeling this. And oftentimes we get so hung up on like, well, should I be feeling this? Well, that's fine, but bracket that for a second because it doesn't change the fact that you are feeling it, that you are going through it. 
And so rather than make judgments about it, we're invited to name that with God because it honors our experience. But it also does something else. It provides us an opportunity to choose, what am I going to do with this feeling? Because when we don't do that, when we don't name our feelings, we give them free reign to rule our lives. And so many of us in our culture are being ruled by our emotions because we just aren't even aware that they're happening. So real practically, get a feelings wheel if you need to. Just Google feelings wheel. There's tons of them upstairs. But it'll begin to help you learn to have language. And so take the time to identify and to name the things that you are feeling, the things that you are carrying with God. This is, an, this is just like an OG spiritual practice. Read the Psalms. It's almost all a list of, of the psalmists saying, this is what I'm feeling, God. This is what I'm feeling, God. This is what I'm feeling, God. And, and if you mirror that with the way that we pray, we go, dear Lord, thanks for the day. Here's the 10 things I have going on. Do them. Amen. And then we're like, why don't I feel like I have an intimate relationship with God? Well, it's because he's just a cosmic waiter in your life and nothing else. And inviting God in to the things that we feel invites him into the deepest parts of our experience. So name your feelings. And then finally, the T invites us to trust his track record. Trust his track record. The vast majority of laments in Scripture, not all, but the vast majority end with what I would call an aspirational acknowledgement of who God is and what he's like. So they end with a declaration of trust. And here's what I want you to understand. They don't end with a declaration of trust because that's how the author feels. They end that way precisely because they probably don't. So it's not like, I mean, they look schizophrenic, right? Like it starts with like, God, where are you? Kill everyone that I hate, but you are good and I will forever trust you. You're like, what happened in the space of six verses there? That declaration of trust is not there because it's what they feel. It's there because it's not what they feel. And so when they and when we acknowledge God's past faithfulness, we do so in order to fight to experience those truths as real. And I've been thinking so much lately about how there is a world of difference between something being true in our lives or even believing something is true and then feeling it as real. And that is especially true in areas of our spirituality. We have these things theologically that we cognitively and rationally believe, but the problem is not that we know how to talk about them or that we believe them. It's that we don't feel them as real. So we believe the truth is God is always with us. The problem is it often feels like God's nowhere near us. And so we have to begin to continue this fight to experience these truths as real. And so as we get ready to close, I just want to encourage you with something. The fact that Jesus tells this story, addressing the temptation to despair in a difficult world, means he isn't surprised by the presence of that temptation within us. He expected it, hence this story. And so I want to just close by offering you a way of reframing this temptation that we all experience to give up on our faith. So rather than receive that as a threat to your fledgling faith, and I know that some of you are here right now, and fledgling is the right word to describe your faith. And if that's you, welcome. You're in the right place. 
And so rather than receive this temptation as a threat, rather than receive it as just some obstacle to overcome or a problem to solve, what if we received it as yet one more uncomfortable invitation to deeper faith through honest, unfiltered, and persistent prayer, specifically in the form of lament? God is not like the calloused judge. He doesn't need you to nag him to get him to care. You have his full attention, you have his unending compassion, and you have his unconditional love. So is life in this world overwhelmingly difficult at times? Absolutely. And does God function on a timeline that is totally different than ours? Absolutely. But does that mean that he is delayed due to indifference? Absolutely not. Instead, he invites us to walk with him through even our most difficult days. And so there there might be some of us this morning that are very much in this season right now and and, and resonate with this in like a real deep way because it's our real-time experience. And if that's you, I just want want to say something. One of the biggest mistakes that we look at 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 seasons of difficulty is we look down the road at forever. And we make the mistake of running the way I feel right now out into the future. And we think things like, I just don't think I can endure this forever. And and here's the secret. Um, You may not be able to. But that also indicates that our eyes are in the wrong place. Because the real question is not, can I endure this forever? Most likely, the way you feel right now is not the way you're going to feel forever. It's the way you feel right now. So the real question is, can you endure your experience with Jesus today? Can he be enough for you today? Let go of forever. You have no idea what forever holds. It's just about today. And the way that we endure difficulty Day with Jesus is just to continue to talk with him and to journey with him in the midst of it. Persistent prayer helps us endure the difficulty of life with patience. And so let's go to him even now in prayer and ask for his help. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are not like this calloused judge that we've seen in this story today. You do care about justice. You do care about our well-being. You care about right and wrong and truth and fallacy. All of these things matter to you. There has never been one injustice that you have been indifferent to. You've kept track of all of that. You will redeem all of that. You will make all things right and you will make all things new. But that's not our experience in this moment. And we just confess that we are tired and weary. Some of us are here this morning, Lord, and, 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 and just not sure how we can get through even another day, much less forever. And so, Lord, we just open our hearts to you, even if they are a mess right now, even if our faith hangs by a thread right now, even if we're here and feeling as though like we don't even think we believe in this moment. We, we open wherever we are to you right now, we just open that to you. And we invite you to invade that space, to bring healing, to bring comfort, 
more than anything, just to bring the peace of your presence and be with us in that place. But Lord, would you please help us not to shut you out, not to withdraw from you, not to avoid you, not to run from you, but to ask you, just come and to help. Lord, we invite you to do that even now. Teach us to pray. Not just our lists of needs, Lord, but to talk with you the same way we would talk with a trusted friend, being open about what it is that is going on inside of us. Help us to do that with you. But we can't do that on our own, so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.